Thanks, Anna. Good morning, everyone. I have a question for you. What were you doing in 1981? Were you even alive? And if you were, can you work out how old you were? What would you have been doing at the time? Well, if you need a bit of help to remind you what was going on at the time, Malcolm Fraser was the Prime Minister. We still had one and two dollar notes made of paper, not plastic. Raiders of the Lost Ark was the biggest grossing movie of the year. Cabbage Patch Dolls were the big hit with the kids. And this song was the number one song across the nation. Listen to this. Thanks, Frank. Well, as you can see, 1981 was a long time ago. 38 years, in fact. Imagine if you'd become unwell in 1981. So unwell that getting anywhere was a real issue for you. Where you had no quality of life and nothing had changed right up to today. 38 long years later. You'd be pretty desperate, wouldn't you? Well, the man described in this morning's passage was in this situation. And if you've got your Bibles at page 1033, that'd be great because I'll be referring to that quite a bit. Our man was desperate for something, anything, to just feel better. After all, he'd been an invalid, crippled for 38 years. And he was desperate enough to place his hope in a myth or a legend. Because in our passage, we find this man lying down beside a pool in Jerusalem called Bethesda. So what was so special about this pool? Uh, Well, many people believed at the time that an angel would come and occasionally stir the water in the pool. And when you saw the water stirring, you had to quickly jump into the pool. And the first one to get into the pool... You are cured. Now, seems a bit far-fetched, I know. But we know something stirred the water because the man describes the bubbling water in verse 7. Now, there are actually two pools at Bethesda. And there are some Bible historians who think that it may have been caused by water draining in from the other pool or possibly even an underground spring. Well, however it happened we do know that this man is placing all his hope in the supposed healing waters of this pool. All he has to do is get into the pool. But his problem is that there's lots of people thinking exactly the same thing. Because verse 3 tells us that many others who need healing are also next to the pool, waiting to be the first to get into the bubbling water. 
the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. They're all doing their utmost to change their circumstances, to get well. If I can just get into the water first, then I'll be cured. They're trying to think up some scheme or tactic to achieve this goal. They're trying to be the first one in through their own strength. Now, this seems foolish to us because of their physical condition. We know how little strength they actually have to change their own situation. But let's be honest. How often are we guilty of trying to change our situations through our own strength? Where our pride kicks in and we think we have the skill or the ability to achieve an outcome that is actually beyond us. And then how often do we finally cry out to God in desperation to help us when we realise our own strength just isn't sufficient? Well, luckily for this man and for us, Jesus turns up. Now, we've heard lots of stories of healing in the Gospels where people have heard about the mighty power of Jesus and approached him, demonstrating their faith by believing he has the power to heal them or their loved ones. There's the story of Bartimaeus or the woman afflicted with bleeding or the centurion with the sick servant. They're just a few examples of this. But this man by the pool, he doesn't even know who Jesus is. Also, there's a multitude of sick people at the pool that Jesus could choose from. But for some reason, he singles out this man. And in verse 6, Jesus approaches the man and then asks what seems to be a pretty obvious question to a crippled man. Do you want to get well? But remember, this man has no idea who Jesus is. He has zero faith in Jesus because he doesn't know him. He has no relationship with him. In verse 7, the man tells Jesus of his frustration with his current situation. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. The man is just hoping for a bit of support. Just help me get into the pool so I can have a chance at the bubbling water. So he waits expectantly for Jesus to give him a hand into the pool. But Jesus doesn't need to use the bubbling water. He doesn't actually lay a finger on the man. Jesus just says, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And verse 9 tells us, at once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. There's no comment from Jesus such as, your faith has made you well, as in the other healings. It's basically because the man didn't show any faith. Why would Jesus single out this man? He seems so undeserving. Well, we'll come to that a little bit later. But next we find out that this healing took place on the Sabbath. Now let's remind ourselves that the healed man had been an invalid for 38 years and can all of a sudden miraculously walk around. So he was crippled, so his only source of income 
would have probably been from begging. So he would have been very visible for all those years. I can imagine this guy whistling a tune, walking around with a real spring in his step. But what do the Jewish leaders say when they see him approaching approach them, very much able-bodied? No, they don't say, you can walk, it's a miracle! No, believe it or not, they say in verse 10, it is the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. I would think that the man was totally dumbfounded by their accusation. In his surprise, he gets defensive, trying to shift the blame. And in verse 11 he says, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So even if there was any doubt before, the Jewish leaders hear straight from the horse's mouth that he's been miraculously healed. You'd think they'd be jumping out of their skins, wanting to know how this amazing miracle happened, as well as being super excited for this man who was now cured after being crippled for so many years. But what are they most interested in? In verse 12, they ask, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? They're more interested in pointing fingers and accusing others of wrongdoing than celebrating the amazing power and grace of God. The sad fact is that the Old Testament law does not forbid carrying your mat on the Sabbath. It forbids working or carrying out business. But unfortunately, over time, the interpretation of this law by the rabbis became so extreme that carrying anything around on the Sabbath became classified as work. Do you know, the rabbis of of Jesus' day solemnly argued that a man was sinning if he carried a needle in in his robe on the Sabbath. The same went even for carrying a handkerchief. But the Jews would get around this crazy interpretation of the law by pinning their handkerchief to their clothing, thereby they were wearing their handkerchief, not carrying it. It was legalism gone mad. So you can understand why the healed man was confused. First of all, he would have needed to be carried to the pool that morning as he was an invalid. And if he were not healed... He'd need to be carried back home as well. So to this man's thinking, this stranger who has healed him has actually saved work on the Sabbath by healing him, not made more work. But we know, however, that the man has no idea who Jesus is. So he is unable to answer the Jewish leader's questions about the identity of Jesus. Instead of feeling elation because of this amazing miracle, He walks away despondent, accused of wrongdoing and being seen in a negative light by his spiritual leaders. Later on in verse 16, the Jewish leaders confront Jesus about his actions on the Sabbath. Jesus says to them in verse 17, My father is always at his work to this very day and I too am working But the leaders still don't get it. They don't have a clue that the Messiah, the Son of God, is standing right in front of them. He was not the Messiah they were expecting. 
What were they expecting the Messiah to be like? Why couldn't they see? Well, we know back in Luke chapter 7, John the Baptist's followers were also a little unsure. And they asked Jesus whether he is the one they'd been waiting for. Jesus replies, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. And yes, these miracles sometimes happened on the Sabbath. You see, there's no law against acts of love, grace and mercy. These are just the outpourings of God's character. But the Jewish leaders were so focused on their tradition, their status and their power in the community that all they could see before them was a threat. So much so that in verse 18, we see that they were even more determined to kill him. After the healed man leaves the Jewish leaders, he has another meeting with Jesus. Verse 14 says that Jesus found him at the temple. This was no chance encounter. Jesus was specifically looking for him. You see, Jesus' work was not done yet. Sure, he'd performed this amazing miracle, making an invalid of 38 years be able to walk again. I'm sure the man was more than happy with this result. But Jesus knew that this man needed a far greater miracle to occur in his life. Jesus says, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Jesus knew this man had to turn away from his sinful life and follow him. He needed the miracle of salvation. Jesus is far more concerned with our eternal destiny than our worldly comfort. So the man now has a choice. Will he embrace a new life as a follower of Jesus or continue to be ruled by fear of man and his standing in the community? Sadly, we see in verse 15 that he went away and told the Jewish leaders just what they wanted to hear, that it was Jesus that had made him well. On the Sabbath, of course. No doubt giving them more ammunition in their case against Jesus. After all that had been done for him, he chose worldly comforts and status over eternity with God. Let me tell you a little bit about my mum. Here's a picture of my mum with a, a young man who's grown a little bit taller since then. My mum was always very spiritual. She was kind of new age before her time. She had an all roads lead to God kind of worldview. And we always had some very interesting discussions about faith. But uh, she thought Christianity was a little too exclusive for her liking. But then in 2005, my mum was diagnosed with cancer of the pancreas. Now, this is an extremely aggressive type of cancer, which generally spreads very quickly to different parts of the body. And research shows that 85 to 90% of patients diagnosed with pancreatic cancer are dead within six months. So as you can imagine, this came as quite a blow. 
My mum wasn't young. She was 68 at the time. Doctors had discovered a large tumour in her pancreas and decided to operate to try and remove the tumour. Now, I'd not really had a life and death situation in my family before. And although I'm a pretty positive person, I understood the seriousness of this situation. And I remember visiting Mum at Royal Prince Alfred the night before her operation. I knew that I had to pray for my mum that night. Now, she was happy for me to pray for her, but I must admit, it was a little bit awkward. She was in this shared ward and there was four other old ladies um, hanging around, sticking their heads up, wondering what was going on. But anyway, I laid my hands on her and I prayed. When I left the hospital, I remember saying to God, it's up to you now. Well, mum made it through the operation, but the surgery lasted eight and a half hours. Now, they were able to remove the tumour, but the surgeon told us that it was only three millimetres away from a main artery. And if the surgeon had nicked that artery, she would have bled to death. The other amazing thing he told me was that this tumour was encapsulated in this hard casing. He'd never, ever seen anything like it before. Anyway... Three months later, she was improving. Six months later, she continued to improve. And after a year, she was stronger again. Now, with most cancers, doctors are not convinced that the cancer has gone until you've had five years of clear scans. Well, to cut a long story short, after five years, mum visited the specialist who could not explain how she was now clear of cancer but said she was a very, very lucky lady. The cancer was completely gone. Now, we had some very interesting, and I must say very frustrating conversations over this time, because I would say, you're a walking, talking miracle. See what God has done for you. But even after all she'd been through, she was not prepared to believe that the one true God who I prayed to was the one who had made her well the one who she needed to give her life to. She was still not able to give up her her alternative views on faith. How could she not see? Well, thankfully, there's a happy ending. Seven years after the cancer, mum became unwell from something that was a completely separate illness and she began to quickly deteriorate. The end was coming quickly and she was placed in palliative care. And two days before she passed away, I visited her and she told me that she had accepted Jesus into her heart, that she'd been wrong all these years and she felt kind of stupid for being stubborn for so long. I don't know how God softened her heart in those final days, but I'm very thankful because now we're going to party together in heaven. I believe God performed an amazing miracle on my mum when he cured her of pancreatic cancer, just like the miracle Jesus performed in healing the crippled man at the pool in Bethesda. But Jesus never healed just for the sake of it. It was either as a response to someone's faith or to bring about a response, such as the man at the pool or like my mum. Yes, he's interested in our wants and our needs, but Jesus is a big picture Messiah. When he asks us, do you want to get well? He's not only thinking of solving some current issue that we may be facing. 
he's talking about releasing us from the chains of sin that entangle us. The man at the pool and the Jewish leaders in today's passage chose unbelief over belief in the Messiah who was right before them. Their traditions and their personal worldview blinded them from believing in the power of Jesus, even when it was staring them in the face. But the living, breathing breathing Jesus can't be pigeonholed. He can do anything. We can't put limits on the Saviour whose power is without limits. You know, Alice and I just returned from a very special trip to Hamilton Island where we celebrate our 25th wedding anniversary. And one of the many highlights for us was to watch the amazing sunrises and sunsets over the island. And then at night, a glorious full moon shimmered over the ocean. While I watched in complete wonder, I couldn't help thinking that God does this every day. It's no big deal for him. So surely the God who can create the universe and controls nature has a much better plan for us than anything we may be able to devise for ourselves. We just have to let him steer the boat. We don't know what becomes of the man who was healed in today's passage. I hope that sometime later in his life, just like my mum, his eyes were opened and he was able to see not only the miraculous power of Jesus, but more importantly, his love, his grace, his mercy, so that he could accept the greatest miracle and gift of all, salvation. This healed man seemed a little undeserving to be singled out that day to receive the gift of healing from Jesus. Surely there must have been someone more deserving besides the pool that day. But thankfully for us, There is no one who has earned the love, grace and mercy of Jesus. The free gift of salvation that he offers, the opportunity to spend eternity in his presence, was totally paid for by his blood, despite the fact that each and every one of us are so undeserving. Do you want to get well? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the creator, the designer, the master of the universe. Your majesty and power are indescribable, immeasurable. We ask for forgiveness when we sometimes try to squeeze you into a box, into the God that suits us. You are so much bigger than that. Guide us that we do not allow our traditions and personal worldviews to blind us from seeing where you are leading us or to hear what you are saying to us. Help us also to grow in our faith and belief so that we are able to let go of the steering wheel and pass the controls over to you. And finally, Lord, we thank you for your boundless love, grace and mercy, which you freely pour on us, though we are so undeserving. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.